Sometimes it happens that we're sharing our stories of uh, what's on our mind. I say this all the time, don't I? And it occurs to me that that's the best teaching that we do the whole morning. You know, that there's really nothing that I could say. Uh, even if I read from the Buddha the, uh, this morning, I um, I was reading as uh, part of that preparation for that uh, the course that I'm preparing that I told you about. I was reading the Four Noble Truths, and the first one about life is suffering, not getting what you want is suffering, being separated from what you love is suffering. And it sounds so formal, and it sounds so far from what's our experience. And then when I listened to all of us saying, I'm thinking about my brother or my sister or my next door neighbor or my child or my cousin who's losing this or discovering that or being diagnosed with that or having treatment for that or the, re the lymphoma of 10 years ago has come back. I got an email this morning from a friend of mine saying about a friend of ours that uh, her third remission from her cancer has now broken through and her cancer is back. I think about how, you know, when you hear about it, not as an, um, an abstract thing, life is suffering, but in each of our lives, we are also incredibly called upon every minute of the day to to face the fact that it's extremely difficult. It's uh, we're so vulnerable. We're so vulnerable. I don't know what I, was, I I did have things I was going to talk about today, but maybe we'll start from talking about. Are we talking? Are we? Am I getting recorded here? If I were to start all over again, I was going to say the real the real awareness is vulnerability. You know. Uh, we laughed about it a few weeks ago when we were together when we were recalling for the umpteenth time uh, the cartoon of the safe falling off the building on the top of somebody who's just gotten uh, his doctor's report and he's and you can see in the cartoon that his, his paper that he's feeling so smug about says that his cholesterol is good and his lipids are good and his this is good and his that's good. But the safe has just fallen off the building and is aiming in his direction, and that we're all more or less in that in that position. And Susan pointed out that uh, we could say that story. We could tell that story in lots of ways. You know, people are about to step off a cliff and they don't notice it, but it's uh, it's an extra level of droll that it's actually a safe that's falling on him. <laughs> you know that uh, you know that. Uh, the idea of safe, um, I ask, I'm home and I'm safe, uh, that, uh, that in, in a human body, uh, which is vulnerable, uh, and with relationships that are dear to us, we are all, all the time, susceptible to, to, to some news of separation or loss or pain or something that we don't want to hear. I was thinking about uh, the response in the mind to getting some news that something awful has happened to somebody that you love. Everybody here in this room has had a phone call sometime that told them something terrible. And the mind, it, it's as if, it doesn't go into the mind, it's as if there's like, the mind, sa the mind says, no, 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 that's not happening can't be. And then after a while, after some while, minutes, hours, days, the mind settles down and says, it's happening. Now what am I going to do? And so much of what we're doing is saying, it's happening. It's happening that, but in Pakistan, it's happening that the, the climate changes in the whole world are really devastating. You know, the, uh, it's not possible not to look around anymore and think something is really strange with the climate here. Too many floods are happening and too many strange things are happening. And what does this mean? <coughs> and uh, we are by and large an older group, but I think about my uh, my youngest grandchild is 10. So uh, 
God willing, she'll be around a long time. And what's this world going to be like? Uh, very, and it's hard to let it into the mind. How much to let into the mind so that the mind can meet it. Um, I remember saying to a friend of mine once, I think this was back around 9-11, when uh, I, I said uh, something about being in some situation where I said, I, I really can't stand it. Uh, and uh, maybe it wasn't the 9-11, it was something. And he said, that's not an option. Not standing it. That's not an option, he said. And it was so bracing, you know. I thought to myself, he's right. It's not an option. What am I going to say? I can't stand it, therefore I'll stop. I can't stand it. Therefore, I'll have to buck myself up some more so I will be able to stand it because there's only there's no, there's no other possibility. We, we move back a little bit, we catch our breath, and we figure out how to stand it. Somebody this morning, while we were talking, said, we're all so kind here. I actually think we all are. I think that that's the kind of people who come here. We we come here because we're moved by the pain of the world and our own pain in here and have the sense that there's something to do about it, that we're not stuck with it, that we could do something. I can't change the world, but I can change the way my mind holds it so that instead of saying, I can't stand you, world, get out of here, I can say, okay, I'm just going to catch my breath, and I'll be right out in a minute, and you know, take a pick it up again where I was last. I think I've, I'm, I'm, I've, I hear myself saying more and more uh, over time that I think the mind looks for ways. Um, maybe it has a built-in uh, gyroscope when it can't stand it anymore. It waits for something that picks it up a little bit, and then it says, okay, now you can stand. It takes a break from it, and then it, it comes back again. Or it allows, it allows itself to be picked up. I re I, when I was writing what I was going to talk about today, I was writing about what is it that picks up the mind? How do we keep on... Um, how do we keep on having the energy to do this in the world? Uh, that in addition to seeing the actually not the the, the pain in in, in being uh, the pain in existence, uh, the beauty in existence as well, that lifts up the mind and keeps it going. I think usually it's in very little it's in very little uh, moments of noticing someone doing something that's particularly dear. Um, one of the things that I watched, this is an image that I've been holding with me for a couple of weeks. You know, I, I was in um, I was in France the last month, and one of the things I did, I do this every, I do every, this is the fourth August running that I've uh, done a week of a bicycle rally. I'm, truth to tell, I'm very proud of myself. It's a, it's a, it's a huge big deal to uh, go with, uh, I go with my husband, this year I had some other members of my family. Usually it's just he and I who go. We go with bicycles. We go to whatever city that year's rally is. Outside of France, not very many people know about the Semaine Federale. It's the, you know, it's the weekly week. It's the yearly week for the uh, uh, Fédération Française de Cyclotourisme, the tourists, the, the bicycle tourists of France. Uh, converge. You have to sign up. You can't just converge. But the first twelve thousand people, the first twelve thousand people that sign up, you have to register on the first of January. Get to come. You get. I should have brought my my. I should have brought all my uh, badges. They're very official looking. And you show up in whatever city it is, and you take care of your own lodging. There are people who camp and. People who stay in dormitories, and there are people who stay in B&Bs, and people who stay in hotels. But you take care of your own lodging and your own food, but you communally come to a very great place, like the Cow Palace, and you get a dossier when you arrive that tells you your next seven days of bicycle touring. And each day you get a uh, route that you follow. And uh, each of the routes... Uh, 
have three possibilities. They all start and end in the same place. But some of them start and end 60 kilometers later, and some of them start and end 120 kilometers later, and some of them start and end 180 kilometers later and do much more elevation. And uh, so we do the teeniest <laughs> route every day. But still, I'm, truth to tell, I'm, I think that's pretty formidable. It's about 45 miles a day. So that's wow, really. I mean, you know. The average age, the average age of the cyclists are, is 59. How many people here are more than 59? I think the mean age is probably in the 50s. The oldest person they told me was past 90, but I didn't, I didn't see. Uh, they said last year there was someone who was 93 and his wife was 87, but I, I would have noticed them if I <laughs> Uh, but of course, there are 12,000 people I might not have. Uh, and and we work out all year, truth to tell. I mean, I work out, so it's not that I show up. I can bicycle, uh, and I have for a long time. So, And I'm very fortunate that my health is good enough to do it. But the, the, the one of the, um, there were moments that was so touching to me. Mostly they're older folks like us or... Some of the really great bicyclists are young adults in very great shape. But uh, mostly they're folks like us. Sometimes they're a little bit younger, and they have 10- and 12-year-old children bicycling with them. You have to be at least that old to do the course. It's pretty hard. And uh, on a number of occasions, I'd be cycling up a long, long hill. Long, <laughs> long hill. And not very steep because it's, I mean, it's, it's gradual, long, but long, so you're going, going. And uh, coming up alongside of me would be a parent and a child, maybe a 10-year-old on a bicycle pedaling along. And the parent is riding next to them and riding with one hand and has their hand in the small of the back of the child next to them, and they're pedaling up this long, long hill. And it brings tears to my eyes all the time. You know, it's, it's a universal gesture of I'm helping you because I can do it. The other gesture of I'm helping you because I can do it are the tandem bicycles in which the some people, are, uh, some people are completely fit and riding tandems. Some people are riding tandems with a person in the back wearing a jacket that says non-voyante, blind. You can ride a tandem blind uh, if you're in the back. And <laughs> so you can you can tell who is you know, I mean a lot of people are riding tandems, but you can tell first of all if the people coming along on the tandem, if the person in front is small and the person in back is big, you can guess that the person in, ba in the back is probably blind, because otherwise the bigger person would be in front, and the person in back who's blind normally does not have their face facing forward. Their face, their head is to the side because they're listening for instructions, turning right, turning left, turning right, turning left. So that gives you such a sense of, whoa, people are so heroic. Um, and I watched myself, too. The first day I thought I could write an entire Dharma talk on the habits of the mind, never mind the pain in the world that causes us uh, grief, but the habits in one's own mind that are extra, completely gratuitous, and don't really need them, like uh, <laughs> bicycling up a hill on maybe the first day. And I'm feeling pretty good, you know. I'm thinking, I'm in really good shape and feeling I have enough energy, enough energy. The hills aren't very, very, most of them. Sometimes there's a little bit of an acute hill, but mostly they're quite reasonable. You have to keep up, 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 up. And if you do up, up, up long enough, it starts to get hard. Go up, 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 up. And I come around a corner, and I look, and ahead of me, I'm really getting tired now, but up, 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 turn the corner, and I see in front of me kilometers, miles ahead of me. It's going up, 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 up. It's continuing <laughs> up, up, up. And along, and there's so many cyclists out there that you see a ribbon of cyclists out ahead of you going up, 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 up. 
And I look up, and honestly, I look up feeling fit and vigorous, and I see it, and the energy falls out of my legs. And it's so clear to me that the mind and the body are really together because you look at it, and all of a sudden, the legs that previously had energy a minute before have no energy just because of a thought. And the thought is, ah, look how long it is. I can't do it. And then I can't. And all the things about you make your own reality. I was so annoyed with myself because I look up and I say, oh. And I realize that it, it simultaneously I thought of two instructions. One instruction was my friend Odette, with whom I bicycle in uh, France all the time. Odette is a couple of years younger than I am, and she's a fantastic cyclist. She can bicycle from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic in five days and overall over the Pyrenees. And <laughs> she's in very great shape. So when I go out with Odette, she's giving me riding instructions all the time. And the biggest instruction, which is a Dharma instruction, is she's, she shouts out at me, best les yeux, keep your eyes down. Don't look up ahead of you. And I, I could hear Odette saying, best les yeux, and I could hear Ramdas saying, be here now. <laughs> In both ears, I had stereophonic Odette and Ramdas. It's the same Dharma. Here is not a problem. If you look at, it's not so, Nancy, when you're swimming across the bay, if you look up if, and you see that the shore is right there, all of a sudden you have a lot of more vigor. If you look up and it's far away, you know, uh, I'll never make it. but it makes a tremendous difference you know I bicycle with my son I bicycle with my son-in-law and they both say different things I say well you're almost there one of them will say uh, oh yeah yeah you're almost there mom keep on going keep on going you're almost there we're really almost there the other one says, well, no, actually, we have a while, you know. And whatever they say, it immediately writes in my body. So, I, you know, and I, th and I mark that down because I've been writing about and thinking about when we say the mind and the body. And I don't know how to write the mind and the body because I don't know that my mind is in my body. How do I know it's in my body? Why isn't it on my right shoulder or behind my body? Or above my body, where is my? You know, is it in my, is it in my belly button or in my nose or where? You know that, where is the mind that suddenly looks up ahead and sees that long thread of riders and says, "Ah, oh, I can't do it anymore." What happens? Something happens. Uh, I'm thinking of calling it a mind body, one word, a mind body. And it is actually, in Pali, the word is mind-body. They don't make a difference between mind-body. It's a mind-body because you have a thought and your body responds in a certain way. Because if he would have said to you, you're 10 minutes away, you would have had a big spurt of energy. Where did you swim from? It's a bay um, in Northern Ireland. So I swim from Southern Ireland to Northern Ireland. Um, it's a town called Omeath, Tony's Park. And the first year I did it, I swam both ways. And he actually did, at that point, as I was swimming, I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to stop after one way. And he did play it the other way. He goes, you know, if you've been in the water an hour and ten minutes, it should be easier going back. And it turned out he lied to me. It was an hour and But it closed that thing of considering. Yeah. But you see, that's a really an amazing thing about how the mind... How many miles was that, by the way? Cold? A little colder than here. <laughs> huh? Beautiful. How many people did that? Oh, that wasn't a group event.
You are the swimmer for a festival. That is great. Have you swum from Europe to Asia across the Bosphorus? I have friends who swim. No, no, because it's great. Then they say I swam from Europe to Asia. And it's it's across the Straits of Bosphorus, I think. So, But it sounds great. I swam from Europe to Asia. You know? <laughs> Put it on my list. <laughs> my, my son did that as part of a fundraiser. And the scariest thing is when all these people go in and you can't clap your wings to say a prayer with the sight, you know, because you can make it through those first few minutes. Yeah. Where you get a little space around you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But your parents, on the other hand, are having a heart attack on the left. <laughs> I didn't hear about it until later. <laughs> now, that, how the mind has an effect on the body, if you can do it, you can do it. So I thought about that, the mind trick. Tell you another mind trick. Uh, somewhat later in that day or the next day, when it got too hard, I was going up a, a steep enough hill that somewhere before the top, I thought, I just can't push my knee, foot down. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come to a cold stop here while pedaling uphill. So you have to get off and push the bike to the top of the hill. I decided, okay, other people do that. I'll, I'll just do that. I had just seen somebody do that, see? So I felt better about it. It's a little schadenfreude about something. I saw somebody else, and I thought, oh, good, she's walking. Now, if I have to walk, I won't feel so humiliated. That's so, you know, all that comparing business extra. I get off, I'm walking the bike up, and I'm thinking to myself all kinds of, that was a really good move, Sylvia. See, there was no point to exhaust yourself totally, and besides, you couldn't. Soon you'll be at the top of the hill, and then you'll get on the bike, and you'll ride down, and the whole rest is going to be okay. Meantime, a car comes around, and these are streets, roads with cars on them, you know. So a car comes down in the other direction, so in the opposite la uh, lane, coming down this mountain road and comes around the corner. It's coming down towards me, and the car stops. Window opens. person's taking a picture. <laughs> and I thought, well, they're taking a picture of the landscape behind me. Then I look around, and there's nothing remarkable about the <laughs> landscape behind me. And I immediately have the, the thought that the cover of the Verdun newspaper the next day, there's going to be a picture of me with the caption that says, older woman cannot make the top of this hill. Then I thought to myself, how come, you know, so first I feel bad. Then I thought to myself, how come I made that caption? How come I didn't make the caption, um, uh, American woman, uh, triumphs above all, you know, uh, you know. Why can't I turn it into some good thing instead of an embarrassing thing? So what, the reason I'm telling you all these stories is nothing, except I wanted to tell them to you because if I was thinking about the, the whole time, I was thinking how to make this into a Dharma talk because the whole thing is Dharma. Who's doing better than me? Who's doing worse than me? Who's noticing me? Nobody cares about me. Nobody knows if I'm walking or not walking. It's not their business. But imagine yourself to be part of the, everybody is looking at me, it makes a difference, I'm so humiliated. As soon as the mind is beleaguered, it becomes so absorbed in its own self and how it looks and what will people think about me. It's nothing when you think about in the sphere of the cosmos, whether or not Sylvia Borstein walked to the top of that hill with a bike or not, you know, or did or didn't, you know, it's nothing. But the mind is so busy, I could be thinking to myself, I could be thinking, may you be free of danger, may you have mental happiness, may you have physical I could be thinking, may all the people in the world who are suffering be relieved from their suffering. I could be doing all kinds of noble things and not thinking about how humiliating that tomorrow's Verdun newspaper will say that about me. It's, I really think that's the point of the, when the Dharma books talk about the tyranny of ego. It's not the ego that's, re I, there are a lot of things about ego that are useful. Part of my ego is knowing my telephone number and remembering where to go home to sleep and all, you know the seven times table. Those are all ego. But the ego that I don't need is the ego that's worrying about how do I look in front of other people or what are people going to say about me or does it matter? It's always some sort of a test. The tedious practice of judging and comparing, I think, is what the Buddha called it. The tedious practice of judging and comparing, which fatigues the mind and doesn't get any place good. Mostly I thought about how extraordinary people are, that they push themselves against all odds. They swim across 
from one Irish, one part of Ireland to another just because it's there. <laughs> or they ride over mountaintops just because they're there. Or the people who put um, the people who put baby carriers on the back of their on their back of their bicycles and carry them up long hills and down and up. they can't leave the baby in the campground. The people who put the carriers on the back of their bikes so, and carry their dog up and down. Now, that's actually quite surprising to me. But, you know, it amuses me, and I think to myself, in addition to all the other weird things that people are, they're helpful, they're inventive, they're funny, they're amusing. At the lunchtime, there are jugglers that are entertaining. And I think to myself as I sit there enjoying my lunch, enjoying the jugglers, enjoying the clowns on the unicycle. I think to myself, the world is in so much trouble, and here are clowns on unicycles, and people having a good time. And the ability to do both of those things, you know. I can't change the world by tomorrow. I could diminish my day by be thinking about the troubles in the world while the clowns are there, but again, be here now, here now. What will I do so that what shall I do with this moment so that I live it optimally and fully? How do I stay alive in this world? What I've been thinking about the whole time, as I thought about those stories, I thought about, how would I talk about my Dharma practice to people? When I began my Dharma practice 30 years ago, more now, I was tremendously interested in um, being a good meditator wasn't sure what that meant, but uh, but because I was already addicted to wanting to do things well and getting a good grade in things, uh, I, I somehow had the idea that it would be being able to sit still through all odds, all discomforts, and to have my attention not move from my breath. That would be a good concentrator. You know, right? and, and some people have good concentration Abilities turns out that I do actually, but I didn't know that for years. Uh, if I want to, I can really concentrate, and it's been interesting the path of concentration because you can make some quite unusual altered states of consciousness from concentration, and I've enjoyed them. Uh, I'm not so interested in them anymore uh, because they're not so necessarily full of wisdom. They're amazing. And they're enjoyable. Uh, sometimes they're very restful. Sometimes they're exotic. Uh, sometimes they, they give you all kinds of shakes and um, rapturous feelings in your body. But when you're all finished, you've got the same family and the same problems and the same world to live in. I, I really, what I'm much more clear about is that... Um, what I hoped for and, and didn't know that I was hoping for in terms of liberation was liberated from the habits that uh, are, unhe are unwholesome, the habits of mind that don't help me. Um, not liberated from, you know, so my mind wanders or doesn't wander. Or, uh, maybe I'm intensely concentrated, maybe not. What I really would like to do is change the habits of my mind so that the habits that uh, are unskillful arise less. I think that's what happens. I wouldn't say that I'm very much more tranquil than I was uh, 30 years ago. I'm not, I don't come from a line of tranquil people. I, I you know, <laughs> come from a, a pretty passionate feeling, family. As a matter of fact, I was worried that I'd become tranquil. You know, that uh, a little bit. I didn't. I didn't. You know, in the early in the early days, in the seventies, the caricatures of meditators was that they were eternally tranquil. You know, they'd, they'd show there were cartoons with people sitting with birds nesting in their hair and. And you might get from those cartoons that the idea was that nothing would faze you, that you could just sit through anything. And that's not true for me. And I didn't actually want it to be true for me. I remember hearing uh, some of the uh, Dharma talks in my early years from my teachers were assured me that um, 
desire would fall away, including uh, appetites of all kinds. Um, and I didn't want that to happen. Uh, I once asked my, my teachers, I was a little ashamed to ask such a... Uh, they, told, they told a story about uh, some people who were a, um, a couple who um, began to meditate and meditated so well that their sexual relationship disappeared because lust didn't arise in them anymore. And uh, rather than inspire me, that worried me. <laughs> so um, I asked one of my teachers uh, somewhat, sensitive, you know, trying to figure out how I could ask that. I asked one of my teachers, and they said, well, I w wouldn't worry about that because that only happens to people who are very advanced meditators. <laughs> but that didn't, that didn't fly for me for an answer because on the one hand, I don't do anything that I don't feel I'm sure that I'm actually going to do with some degree of proficiency. And on the other hand, but it was a bad answer. It's a bad answer. It's not the right answer to that. I actually think, I actually am convinced that I have more of an ability to have a wide range of passion uh, 30 years later than before because I'm less afraid of strong feelings. I think I have, I think I probably have more equanimity, but not tranquility, which is that. Equanimity means everything happens to you and you pull it together again, or you hold it within the context of balance. And you hold it always within the context of knowing this is what's happening now, but I, there's, a, there's a holding space around this in which I can rest. I even thought about it earlier this morning when I was reading the beginning of um, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on Foundations of Mindfulness that begins, this, O monks, is the end of grief and lamentation. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not sure it's the end. Uh, I'm not sure I can envision the end of grief. When I hear about uh, how many Pakistanis have drowned, how many people are in trouble here or there and in other places, the devastation in Haiti, which you can't imagine that we keep hearing about, I feel grief about that. I think we all feel grief about that. I think that there's a way to understand feeling grief profoundly in, in, the, in, in the marrow of your being and being able to hold grief. I think that that's one of the incredible things about human beings. I hadn't thought I'd tell this story, but uh, the very first long meditation retreat that I went to in the summer of 1977 was up in Toledo, Washington. Uh, and I didn't know anybody there. It was 14 days long. Uh, I, uh, my husband had gone on a retreat, and he said, it's great, you should go, and so I went. But I really didn't know anything about it and have any particular experience, nor did I very much get the instructions, nor was I very good at keeping my attention focused on the breath. And it was very hot. Just bef but I stayed the whole ten day, 14, 14 days, and I did it. I did it so scrupulously. The, the instructions were don't read anything. So when I got off the plane and I landed in Portland or wherever it was that I landed, in a great flurry of drama, I threw my magazine into a wastebasket, <laughs> and I immediately lamented it because, first of all, I had some articles I wanted to read on the way home, and second of all, I don't like to be without reading matter. I mean, most of us carry around reading matter all the time, lest we get into bed and want to read, or we read all the time. But here I did, I threw away my reading matter, was reading or trying not to read what the writing on the, on the toothpaste box. <laughs> because you feel deprived of reading. Sodium laurelate is what's in most... <laughs> But I stayed the whole two weeks, and I did exactly. I sat and I walked, and I sat and I walked. I had a terrible headache. I, uh, my body hurt me, but I did the instructions. I did the instructions without fail. 
And uh, I felt better the second week than the first. My headache went away. Uh, and I began to actually feel certain changes in consciousness. Not that much. I felt um, that the leaves were a little sharper in outline. I felt colors were a little brighter. I could, uh, I felt the senses uh, a little bit uh, clarified. Aldous Huxley called it, um, wrote about cleansing the doors of perception, that um, I heard the birds. I, I could smell the oatmeal way down the hall when I was going for breakfast. I could tell what was for lunch. I could tell, oh, Italian food, because I could smell the oregano. I could think, well, this is pretty interesting, but smelling the oatmeal is not that big of a deal. If, if, you know, if I'm working so hard, you know, for it, it was hot and crowded. And, but at the end of the retreat, on the very last night, I called home to uh, arrange with my husband that whatever time my flight was getting in, and uh, my father, who lived down the street from me at that time, who was young, he was sixty-five. He was in good health. He was my very good friend. And he had felt uh, peaked before I left. And I said, how's my dad? And he said, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, he's not good. Uh, he went to the doctor, and he has multiple myeloma, which is now, uh, now it's actually a, um, a long-term treatable disease. At the time, it didn't have a, a, a cure treatment. It had a short-term holding treatment, but... It's a, it was a fatal disease. It's a cancer. And he said, I'm really sorry to tell you that, but um, they said probably two years. Um, and I, I was actually tremendously sad. I loved my father. I'm an only child. My father was an only child. We were great buddies. Um, and uh, he lived down the street. Um, I remember, I remember getting that phone call and feeling so incredibly sad, grieved. And I also knew in that moment that I did not feel like the kind of feeling that you usually feel when you get a news like that, like you can't stand the news. When you get news like that, you think you're going to fall through the floor or the floor is going to open and you'll get swallowed up or that you cannot stand that news. That and simultaneously, my mind heard the news and it stood it. It just did, and and I could not have articulated that that well at that time. Um, but I knew that something different had happened in that moment, and you know, I think to myself afterwards. I when I'm t when I tell that story, I'm very careful to want people to know that I felt very, very, very grieved. I, uh, certainly it wasn't that, okay, things come and go, that I had such tremendous perspective on wisdom that everything that arises passes away. It was a terrible piece of news for me, and I felt very, very bad, and I didn't feel demolished, that somehow I knew, all right, we'll take care of this. We'll manage it one way or another, he and I. And we did, actually, over the next several years manage it together. Um, and I thought to myself later, I was so uh, grateful for the fact that that news happened just at that moment. I could have gotten that news two days before I left on that retreat or three weeks after I got home. And I think it would have been a whole different experience. And as a, I, I, th I just feel it was a grace for me to be able to hear it with a mind that was able to hear it at its optimum level of wisdom. This is what happens. My father is dying. Okay, what are we going to do next? That's really, it was, uh, and had somebody said, okay, did you get enlightened? No. My back stopped hurting and my, head, and my headache went away. I didn't think I was enlightened. I didn't think I could meditate. But in that moment, my mind was as wise as it could have possibly been. And I couldn't have known it from anything else. And uh, two days later, it probably wouldn't have been so clear, and certainly three weeks before, not either. And I don't know. It just, uh, I just think that was a, just a great grace. But how did I get to that point? What point was I trying to make? 
I was trying, I think, to talk about, oh, that I don't think it's the end of grief. I think it's not the end of grief. I think grief is there. And I think grief is there, and grief that can be held is grief that can be responded to with a really a, a wise compassion. We we had a really quite a good time in the next couple of years, he and I, and we absolutely knew that he was dying, but we had a good time together. Uh, he lived more than two years. He lived seven years. We went to Europe together. Uh, we did lots of things together. We went to the movies together. Uh, a couple of weeks before he died, on a day that he was feeling really bad. And uh, the mor in the morning, I, you know, I'd, he lived right nearby, and I'd come every morning and be with him all day. And he was really feeling bad. And I said, what do you want to do today? And he said, I don't, you know, I don't feel bad. I don't feel good at all. I said, well, let's go to the movies. Let's go see Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> and he said, looked at me incredibly, and he said, uh, you know, I'm dying. I said, yeah, I know, but not today. So we went to Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then we went out to dinner, and a couple of weeks later he died. Uh, and it wasn't bad. Uh, it, you know, and as uh, so I want to say, it's not the end of grief. I am rewriting the Dharma that I learned <laughs> 30 years ago. I'm glad I lived long enough to be able to rewrite it. It's not the end of grief. It's the end. Uh, it's 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 the end of the belief that you can't deal with it, or that you can't hold it. I think that's the most remarkable thing about human beings, is that we can hold incredible grief, and manage it, and keep our hearts going. By looking around, seeing how everybody's helping everybody else up the hill, that that gesture. I thought it's a universal gesture, that gesture of the parent leaning over and pushing this child up the hill. I saw that gesture in the back of um, a class up at Spirit Rock a couple of years ago. I was sitting up at the big, uh, big hall up there. I was sitting in the middle of a retreat, and the room was all quiet. Everybody's sitting. And, of course, we tell everybody, keep your eyes down. Don't look at anybody. No eye contact. Certainly no touching anybody. No nothing. And as I'm sitting, we're all sitting meditating, I hear someone crying, because you can hear someone crying. And people try not to cry with a big, loud noise, but people are crying. And I looked out, and some woman in the back is crying, trying not to cry, but crying, because sometimes you're overwhelmed with something. So let's say I'm, I'm here's this woman sitting and crying, and I, I look back, I see her, I see there's a woman sitting next to her, who I know, I know both of these women from interviews with them, and I know they don't know each other, right? They come from different places in the world, whatever. They, they sit next to each other. And this woman, the non-crying woman, without turning her head, but hearing the crying, put her arm out and touched this other one on the shoulder and kept her arm there for a few moments and then took it back. And I thought, really, I was so glad about that. We tell all these instructions about don't look at anybody, don't touch anybody, don't this, don't that. You're supposed to touch somebody if the person next to you is crying. I mean, where are we? <laughs> what are we teaching if not putting out our hand and say, okay. My, uh, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, used to say that his favorite mantra when his mind was distraught was, it's okay. Say, what's okay, Joseph? He says, just, it's okay. Whatever it is, it's okay. The mind gets frightened. It gets frightened. It gets pained. It gets, it feels abandoned. It feels dismayed. It feels embarrassed or jealous or whatever it feels, devastating. But it's okay. That, I think, is the equanimity. And I think that's the part around all the feelings that we have. Poise is a word I like, that the mind has a certain amount of poise in it, equipoise, can figure out what should I do now. And I think that's what we're practicing about, that, that somehow we're going to get called upon in this lifetime to meet all kinds of challenging situations. And those people with the poise are going to have to help those people who don't have the poise at that time. So maybe we're all training for that.
So now I see what I really wanted to tell you today, because that wasn't it. Mostly what I wanted to talk about, and I'm I'm eager to talk a little bit with it, about it with you because I've been thinking about it just as I was up very early this morning, thinking about it for a, a class I'm writing, that very class that I told you about, thinking about the different habits of mind that people have that seem to be part of the equipment that we come with. I was writing about the habits of mind that are called uh, hindrances. They're called hindrances because they hinder clear seeing. Like if somebody has a habit of getting angry easily, that that, that getting angry, once you get angry, your mind is confused, and then you can't actually respond well to what's going on. Uh, funny, I just remembered the story that one of my friends told me about her grandmother who died at a very advanced age, and uh, talking to the grandmother near the end of her life, who had not at that point talked to my friend's mother in 30 years. And uh, the grandmother said to uh, Rana, uh, you know, I haven't talked to your mother in 30 years. And Rana said, yes, I know that. And the grandmother said, do you remember what it is that I'm mad about your mother about? And Rana said, uh, no, I don't remember. Actually, she remembered, but she didn't want to bring it up. She said, no, I don't remember. And the grandmother said, neither do I, but I remember that I'm angry. <laughs> and it's a sad story. It's funny, so I don't mind telling it. And Rana doesn't mind that I tell it either. But it's a sad story because the, the intensity of the angry feeling that that somehow writes itself into our neurons, so clouds over that we don't even remember what we were angry about or what was the matter with it. Or and I was I was writing this morning about we all have mind habits, and I was saying I don't have the habit of getting angry very easily. Some people have a short fuse. Anybody here has a short fuse? No, no, no. I'm interested in that because I think it's a neurological thing. That usually the people I know had a short fuse. Their parents before them had a short fuse. Is that true? Was you, yeah. Parent before had a short fuse. It can be worked with. <laughs> now I'm very happy for that, Tish, because I say to people that I am a recovering fretter. That I am a recovering fretter. I will tell you about the habits of mind. I think that there are several. I've been thinking about the hindrance habits of mind, and then we're going to put some more habits around that. The hindrance habits of mind are the habit of lusting, the habit of needing to feel better by um, assuaging one's distress, whatever it is, with some sensory pleasure, so that it's usually uh, described as... Uh, person says, wait a minute, I have to have a cup of coffee, I have to have a cigarette, um, I'm going to run across the street and get a donut, I'm going to call a friend. Uh, yesterday I was so upset, I uh, I went out and bought myself a, a new pair of pajamas, and that made me feel better. There are people who like stuff, it makes them feel better, and their mind calms down. People who, when their mind are challenged, they get mad and they lose it, they, they lose it. And then they say, I feel better, I got it off my chest, now I feel better. Everybody else feels worse, but they feel better. <laughs> uh, none of these are very functional, you know. That the, there are better ways to buy pajamas than out of uh, out of, uh, of an urgent need. Or people say, you know, I can't do it. I give up. I surrender. Or they run out of energy. People like myself who are recovering fretters say, oh, it's not working. It probably won't work worse. Probably everything isn't going to work. Probably every all the decisions are going to fall through. Probably whatever it is. <laughs> uh, probably not, you know, that uh, uh, the people who think, what if, what if, what if. Anybody here is a what if thinker? What if? Some people don't think what if. Um, I think the, I, the, 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 the mind of a what if thinker who's been meditating for a long time 
works like this. You go, you, uh, you go to a place where you're supposed to meet somebody. You've made up to meet them at 5 o'clock on a certain street corner, and it's 5 to 5, and they're not there. And you say to yourself, what if they don't show up in five minutes? And the former mind would have thought, I'll call the American Embassy. Surely they're, they're you know, uh, something has befallen them, and we're in a strange town, and uh, where's the American Embassy anyway, and where's my passport, and anyway, he's an old man, and what could have happened? And uh, That's the old mind. The new mind says he'll probably be here. And then when he's not there at 5 o'clock, it says, you know what? This is your habit of mind, making up a stupid story in order to frighten you. Don't do it. Wait, something ill has befallen this person. You'll find out soon enough. Be plenty of time to get upset. Don't do it now. Let's do some window shopping. Let's do something else. It's a mind that, that's manageable. The thought does not, not come up. The thought comes up, but it's a manageable thought. Say, I see you thought. I'm not doing it. That, for me, is monumental to be able to say my mind pattern of uh, calamitous thinking has just kicked in. I'm not doing it. Anybody has a mind pattern of calamitous thinking here? How many people have that? Would you like to be rid of it? <laughs> it's a, you have that mind habit? Well, but mine manifests in a different way, and I actually love the use of the word amuse the reader, because I go to camps that self-blame. So if it's five to five, it's like, oh, God, I got the wrong time, I got the wrong city, it's my fault. <laughs> And no, no, actually, Nancy, I'm thinking that the fifth of the five hindrance energies is self-doubt. So you actually have just uh, <laughs> taken taken two of them together. <laughs> taken two of them together. So those are actually the five fail-safe energies. Like when I when I teach, I once once years ago, I was teaching in another city. Just a one-night class, and people didn't know me. And I told a story. Maybe some of you know this story, but it's worth telling again. It's a, just like this kind of a story because the punchline is worth it. Somebody on a Wednesday morning class said, yesterday morning, I live in San Francisco. You all know I live in San Francisco. I came out of my house. I went down, and I was about to get in my car, and I noticed all the wheels had been stolen during the night. So I uh, went into my, I went back in the house. I found the super. I gave her a piece of my mind because she's supposed to be, uh, uh, oh, I know, the first person, that person says, so I got so upset about it, I was distraught. I walked two blocks to Stonestown. She was the person with the pajamas. She said, I walked two blocks to Stonestown and I bought the silk pajamas in the windows of Nordstrom's that I had been coveting. And then I felt better, and then I went home, and I called the police, and uh, and then another person, it's actually happened in this very room, maybe one of you were here, and someone said, you did that? I would have gone in and found the super and give her a piece of my mind, because after all, we hire her, we pay money, she's supposed to be minding the street, someone steal a tire, would have given a piece of my mind, and then I went to work, and I would have given them a piece of my mind, because if I'm upset, people are, you know, can let other people know. Third person said, you know, I, I would never do that. I'd go back in the apartment, I'd call up, and I'd say, listen, you can't believe the day I've already had. I've got to start with the cops and the police and the insurance. I'm staying home. I have no more energy. And another person said, well, you know me. I would have thought today the tires, tomorrow the car. It's a, it's forget about it. <laughs> and... Uh, and the fifth person, who may or may not have been making it up, given the overview, said, I would have thought, once again, I have screwed up. You know, I rented an apartment in such a stupid place where my car is vulnerable. So it covers the f And it actually happened. Actually, was anybody here the morning that that happened? Because it is not an apocryphal story. I was here the morning it happened. But that story has given me a lot of mileage in many cities because it actually happened. 
And most of the time, people people are all get it. And then I say to people, okay, how many, this is a very gross overviews of, but how many of you would have gone to Stonestown and gotten pajamas or a hot chocolate or a something, 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 go in and, you know, yeah. how many of you would have gotten mad, let a few people have a piece of your mind? How many people would have said, I'm going back to bed, too terrible of a day? How many people would have said, uh-oh, you know, I can't know what's going to happen next. You have to worry. How many people would have said, it's my fault? Okay. I tell this whole thing, people are raising their hands all over the room. Some people said, can you choose more than one? All of the above. My friend Dick Bolton, who no longer of this world, but then of this world, who was in the back of the room, said, I don't get it, Sylvia. He said, I would have gone back in my apartment, called the cops, filed a report, called the taxi service, and gone to work. What's the matter with all these people? So that, 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 and the truth is that everybody would have done that. Everybody really would have done that. So when you think about what, they, I mean, all right, in this case, somebody went to the Stonestown, whatever. But everybody mostly would do that. But what it really means is what would the mind like to do in those circumstances? It's the fail-safe position of the mind. Mind really does, my mind doesn't tend to get mad. I come from mild-mannered people. But it tends to get frightened. Uh, other people tend to get something else. And the thing is that once you get to see where it tends to go, you don't have to go anyplace. And I really have been thinking a lot about the word liberation more than anything else, more than enlightenment. Because I'm not sure what enlightenment means after all these years. Uh, you know, what does enlightenment mean? That greed, hatred, and delusion never arise in me again? That's not true. They do. Uh, that anger never arises in me again? It arises. I, I hope I manage it well. Uh, Maybe in some people it doesn't, but that's actually not what interests me so much as the word liberation from the habits of my mind, that whatever arises, that I should not be at the mercy of the habits of my mind, that I should be able to say, there is my mind doing its stupid habit of calamitizing. I, you know, I don't have to do that. It's like I could sit this one out, you know, I could, I, you know... Uh, I could do something else. I could walk into the store and look around at the stuff and come out in five minutes and then see what's going on. The world will go on and it will do exactly what it's going to do with or without my participation in it. I don't have to be here and fret it. You see, there's a, there's, there's a kind of a nuttiness in the fretting mind which imagines that if I fret, I protect whatever it is that I'm fretting about from, from anything happening to it. But to be able to say this, you know, I don't, I, I'm not in charge. We'll soon see. And to see the habit of the mind and neither dance to that habit or even get mad at the habit. I shouldn't have that habit anymore. So many years of practice and why is that habit gone yet? It, because it's not. Who knows how it's installed there? Person, spiritual person like me, it's embarrassing to have such a habit like that. Why? Everybody's got habits. Everybody's got habits. Everybody's got personalities. Who here doesn't have a habit of mind or a peculiarity? <laughs> if we said, ready, set, go. <laughs> Who here is afraid of lightning? Nobody's afraid of lightning? Yeah. Why not? No, oh, no, I just thought of it because I'm afraid of lightning. If I'm out, if I'm out bicycling on a long hilltop and it starts raining and lightning, you have no idea how fast I bicycle. <laughs> It's another mind-body connection, but you get such a jolt of adrenaline. You bicycle like a superhero, if you you know, if you imagine. And my, my companions, who are not afraid of lightning, say, "Don't worry, it always hits the highest thing, and you're not the highest." Thing. <laughs> <laughs> but the mind makes up stuff. Really, what I have been thinking about, and you can help me think about it next week, because it's a it's a topic of that's very interesting to me. What do we? Why, what do I really want to have happen from my practice? I don't know about enlightenment, about plucking out forever greed, hatred, and delusion. It hasn't happened. I don't know if I can. I don't want. I'm not interested particularly in cultivating 
more exotic, um, deeply concentrated states, <laughs> however interesting they are. I'm interested in them when I go to the dentist so that if I can, can make some deeply exotic state so I'm not there. But it's way easier to have Novocaine. <laughs> and, uh, so I, 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 but I really, really would like not to be held hap, hap, captive by, by uh, habits of the mind that cause me suffering. Not only those particular hindrance habits, but the habit of... Uh, the habit of forgetting that uh, these things happen. You know, like when we listen to all the really dreadful things that are happening in the world. I want to be able to hold them in my mind, recognize them, address myself to them, and not feel like they're a mistake. This is what happens. This is what's happening in this world. That if I, uh, if I take ill with an illness like my father's or anyone else's. Well, you know, I, I'll use my friend Martha, who said when I say about myself, why me, why me? Why do I have pancreas cancer? Why me? Yeah, I suffer terribly until I suddenly think to myself, why not me? People have pancreas cancer. It's one of the things that happen. The habit of forgetting that this is a real world in which things happen as a result of multitudinous, immeasurable, unknowable karmic factors. So we can't know. I've really been thinking about that a lot too, uh, uh, the, the, the meaning of karma as, uh, that karma is immeasurable, uh, imponderable is what the Buddha called it, imponderable. You can't imagine all the karmic forces that have to do with any single event happening. The fact that all of us are here today has to do with the fact that the whole world was here forever. Everybody's whole background, everybody's parents and grandparents and this and that and the other and that, and that had to happen for us to be here right now. And none of us had to ever have been in, in, a, in a grave accident, which is amazing considering that we've crossed zillions of streets together. So it's a miracle that we're here today. You know, when I look around in any place, I think the fact that we're all here is a miracle. You know, that sometimes if I think to myself, if the people could abbreviate the a whole prayer book and said to, well, thank you. You know, to say, thank you. I have friends whose um, cultural habit when you say to them, how are you, as they say, praise God. You don't know if they're good or bad, you know, if they, if they have some illness or not illness, but they say, praise God, uh, which means whatever it is, I'm accepting it. That's the way it is as a result of all the things. And I will not let my mind be fatigued by whatever it is. It's what it is, whatever it is. Why, you know, why not me? And to keep that in, in the focus along with that everything is miraculous. Like planes take off and land. Yeah. <laughs> I always think about that, especially when I come home on these long voyages, and, I, I, and it, it's um, a little bit more than 100 years since the Wright brothers flew 70 yards <laughs> in Kitty Hawk. <laughs> Uh, 70 yards, that's like from the front of this room to the back of the room. <laughs> and here this great iron bird with 300 people on it gets up and flies across an ocean and comes down in the right place. Our flight, for some reason or other, it must have been the traffic or the winds or something, came in in an unusual pattern over San Francisco. I'm looking out and I think, this doesn't look right. Doesn't look right. Doesn't look right. And turning and banking and turning and banking again. But by and by, thump, down, <laughs> in the right place. And all those people get off as if it's normal. As if it's normal. Think to yourself, people are so creative, so ingenious. Surely somebody will figure out how to take the pollution out of the 
out of the ozone layer and how to clean the seas. And someone has to figure out how we can stop killing each other as a species. But that could happen. Maybe because we'll all internet each other and say, want to be my friend on Facebook or something. <laughs> I'm really glad to be back. It's good for me. Good. <laughs> so we'll sit for a minute. I'll be back next week. Um, I've lost track of time, but I will be back next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.